Welcome to the Don Pravda and Erica Gray Show, The Twist. Welcome to The Twist. Today, I have from Paris, Count Christian Andlau. You are president of Pan-Europa. You're a federalist. And it has been said that the Russia-Ukraine war ended globalization. The world is now breaking into regions with Russia aligning with China, India, and other nations, and the EU with the US, Canada, and the UK. How will the globalist aim of Pan-Europa survive in this new order, especially since its vision included Russia, which you had informed me about? Well, uh, Erica, yes, I'm a European federalist, but certainly not a globalist, uh, because the cultural and geopolitical compatibilities between us, the Europeans, uh, the European Union and uh, the USA, uh, on one hand, and with Russia on the other hand, uh, and even between the members of the EU, are uh, enough of a headache. Uh, so, I'm not not sure, headache. <laughs> so I'm not, not sure if I'm still a federalist, or rather in favor of European uh, confederation, as far as um, globalism is concerned. I think that um, only the methods of the Chinese dictatorship could enable a world government to survive. It seems to me that neither you nor I would want such a, a tyranny. Well, it's interesting that you're saying a confederation and that you're now in favor of a confederation, but the European Federalists want a federation and the European Union to be modeled along the lines of the United States meaning that the nation states relinquish their sovereignty with decisions decided in Brussels. So how did you, so how can you hold the federalist view and also be for a confederation, which is what more of your uh, conservative or right-leaning parties are advocating? Because uh, federalism is uh, only advocated by some elite in, uh, in the European institutions, but uh, the people, most people in Europe are not in favor of federalism. So uh, this is why I think that uh, confederation would be more adapted uh, to, uh, to a democratic uh, uh, Europe. So your input in Pan-Europa now as well as within the Federalist Party is more confederalist versus federalist. So I'm a little bit lost because the, the Federalists are, the ideology is ideally for a world federation and wanting to work through the global institutions. And there's also a very different thing happening in Europe now where you're seeing more of Europe also make decisions that are good for Europe and even moving away from some of the federalist ideology into more of this empire age that that is upon us. But before I go forward, you had also stated to me that the vision had included Russia, this pan-Europa vision. So how does your view now align with pan-Europa? Yes, that's true, because uh, the aim of uh, Pan-Europe 
it, it was originally uh, United States of Europe from San Francisco to Vladivostok. Yes. Um, of course, over the Atlantic Ocean, not the Pacific. <laughs> and that was in the words of our founder, Count Richard, uh, Richard Kudnov-Kalergi in 1924. Of course, this aim is uh, still uh, remote and idealistic. So uh, keeping in mind, keeping it in mind, um, we're in fact just a think tank. So it sounds like it's actually moved away from uh, the original ideology. And Pan-Europe, of which, uh, as you said, I'm not uh, the Secretary General anymore, um, but only uh, the president in Alsace, uh, with the, the European institutions in Strasbourg, um, this this think tank is uh, separate uh, from my federalist uh, party. It has nothing to do with it. I'm I'm in charge of both uh, the federalist party in Alsace and um, and uh, the Pan Europe think tank, but th these are two different uh, things. And what is Pan-Europa right now contributing? What's its current contribution as far as ideas for the European project? Well, um, it has helped uh, several uh, countries from Central Europe uh, to apply uh, for membership uh, to the European Union. For instance, it has helped um, Croatia very much uh, Slovakia uh, and some some other countries. Okay, so that's more it's more recent. So it's still following in the footsteps of the former, well, the now deceased Archduke Otto von Habsburg, who brought in the various Eastern Bloc nations. And it sounds like it's still following that path with membership. Yeah. Although the membership is on hold at the moment. Yes, so, so you, you, you just mentioned the Habsburg Empire, and uh, important parts of the Ukraine were, were parts of that uh, uh, Habsburg Empire. Uh, so we're quite ready now to help uh, Ukrainians uh, apply to the, the European Union and fill in their forms, uh, etc. But this is still uh, too soon. Yes, Ursula von der Leyen went and met with Zelensky to fast track. Do you think that Ukraine will be fast tracked to membership of the EU? Do you think that's possible? Well, first of all, this war has to come to an end. Yes, and your president Macron has actually stated that. That's his position as well. Yes, it is. The membership cannot take place with a nation that is currently in war. And what is the reasoning behind that? Because uh, we, we cannot afford to import a war within, uh, within uh, the European Union. That's not been elaborated on. I know that Macron has stated that several times and not elaborated why, because I think Ukraine's idea is, or Zelensky's idea, is if he could fast track to membership, then he would have the protection of the European Union to whatever capacity it's able to protect with its 
still forming army. And I know the EU has just thrown a good deal of weaponry, but I think that's kind of what Zelensky was hoping, or it would might, I don't know if he felt that by becoming a member sooner, he might come under the NATO umbrella. Yes, because uh, once a country is a member of the European Union, all the other countries are um, uh, compelled to help that country militarily and uh, go to war with that country. Uh, and that, uh, that is not, <laughs> that is not uh, the present project of the European Union. Uh, we are not co-belligerents. Right. Now, you work along with the EPP. Is that correct? Or do you work along with yes. other parties within the EU or just the, the EPP? Um, with all parties, but uh, we are closer to the EPP than to others because... Um, uh, two of our presidents, the, the president of Germany and Otto von Habsburg, the late Otto von Habsburg, uh, were members uh, of the EPP. Oh, okay. They, they were members of the parliament, of the European Parliament mm -hmm. within the EPP. I wasn't aware that Habsburg was a member of the EPP. I knew he was a member, he was an MEP for a long time. Now, my next question is the European Union is punching up to its weight. It's writing, rewriting the rules for the world through its Digital Services Act and other policy areas. It's working on its strategic compass to compete its army. It's working on a capital markets union, banking union, that's earmarking the euro as a major global reserve currency. In addition to its 84 trade packs, it will be working on adding one with India. Finally, it has just convened the Conference on the Future of Europe and will enact many changes to it to make it a democratic political empire. Now, Europe has let it be known it's out for its own interests, as did India and, of course, Russia. Where do you see the EU in five years and where do you see the US and Russia? Well, first of all, in order to become a democratic political empire, as you just said, the EU ought to become a democracy and not just a technocratic and authoritarian commission as it is now. Uh, it ought to broaden the conditions uh, for the European Citizens Initiative, allow referendums, and at least give uh, real power to the European Parliament, which is currently only a registration room. So this is where I wish to see the EU in five uh, or in ten years. Um, now concerning the USA, I wish uh, to see uh, to, to see uh, the USA get rid um, of at least, or at least neutralize uh, the American hawks of the military industrial complex and uh, the political and financial lobbies within the next five years. <laughs> Concerning Russia, uh, I wish them to renounce the detestable policy of lying and brutality. But all these wishes uh, may just be wishful thinking because uh, most of the time in history, at the end of the day, geopolitics usually have the last word. Uh, um, from, this, from this point of view, I'm somewhat uh, surprised that the Chinese have not yet thrown themselves on the throat of the Russians 
who sees Siberia taking advantage of their current stalemate in the Ukraine. Interesting, interesting point. I want to ask you when you mentioned about the European Union and it being undemocratic, it has just concluded the um, this whole plenary sessions so that they could enact changes, the Conference on the Future of Europe. And apparently there's like over 300 changes that are coming. Have you had a chance to look some of those over? And do you feel that it's going to lend the democratic legitimacy that the union is lacking? And I agree with you there. The European Union is an undemocratic institution or it's an undemocratic empire and it needs more democratic legitimacy. But are you aware of any of those or shall we make that the topic for another interview and we can yes, go? It could be a topic for another interview. Um, but uh, little by little, there is some progress, but little by little, very slowly. I've looked and it over briefly. For, I beg your pardon? Looking it over briefly, it looks as if the European Parliament is going to be given some more powers. I'm not sure how much, but some more. And there's going to be some voting procedure for the MEPs on transnational lists where the nations can vote for different MEPs and something about the uh, process of the commission president will be a little bit more in line, but it, it's a pretty long document. So I have to give some more time. But my first impression, uh, Christian, is I'm not really sure it's going to give the legitimacy that I would be looking to see or that you're looking to see. I'm not sure that it's going to go enough, although they are eliminating the unanimity rule, which keeps the union from going forward. People of, uh, of the European Union, this is why there is a, a, a misunderstanding. This problem, uh, the Europeans to uh, consider themselves as uh, really citizens of the EU. Yes, yes. Again, that'll be a great topic for another interview is to really look at those changes and and discuss uh, some of them because there's quite a few. And then finally, the final question is, what is your view of the European Union's policy with Russia and it becoming like the United States in using their currency, which is the Euro as a weapon to sanction Russia to death? And I say sanction to death because I don't know, uh, they've just issued more sanctions. I'm not sure how many more sanctions you can keep issuing. There's almost no none left, and yet it still keeps going forward. What are your What are the concerns of the French versus other members of the European Union? In addition to that question, what are the concerns of the French versus other members of the EU? And are you in agreement with Macron's endeavors to stop this war? And how would Pan-Europa approach this conflict? So let's look at the first uh, piece of this, which is what is your view of the EU's pol sanction policy? Well, to put it in a nutshell, uh, I would say that the sanctions will cost uh, a dear price to uh, the Europeans almost as much as to the Russians. That's, uh, that's quite sure because we are very much dependent on uh, on uh, on uh, Russian commodities and uh, 
and energy. But the EU's policy with Russia is a very sad one. Uh, and both sides are responsible for the present mess. When the Iron Curtain um, fell down with the Berlin Wall in 1989, we could have built uh, our dream of a pan-Europe from San Francisco to Vladivostok, because Mikhail Gorbachev allowed the reunification of uh, Germany against some guarantees of safety for Russia even went to Washington uh, begging for financial support. The financial uh, help was refused to him with only an insulting tip. And the military guarantees for Russia have been trampled by NATO, who did not stop uh, from encircling Russia with strategic missiles all uh, pointed at her. So uh, when he came to power in 1999, Vladimir Putin throw Western as uh, Gorbachev in his time. But uh, during the next 15 years, until 2014, he reached out at uh, least three times to the EU and to NATO in order to obtain a cooperation agreement that was always refused to him. The answer of the West to uh, his third humiliating attempt was the Maidan uh, revolution in Kiev, organized by an employee of Mr. Sector of the Bundesnachrichtendienst, the German Secret Service, and uh, another important person who was uh, Mr. James Wellesley, uh, ex-director of the Central Intelligence Agency, CIA, in the mid-1990s. Uh, so uh, we all know what happened after Maidan, um, the Minsk agreements, which were never respected by any of the signatory parties, the annexation of uh, Crimea by Russia, and the eight years of nonstop bombing of the Donbas Russian-speaking Ukrainians, uh, who were denied the right to use the Russian language, um, and who were only asking for an autonomous recognition within the Ukraine and not even dreaming uh, of independence. So instead of calming the nationalist aspirations of the Russians and Ukrainians uh, by encouraging them to respect the Minsk agreements, every effort has been made to stir up ancestral hatred among them. Why is that so? The answer is because the soil and the subsoil of Russia and Ukraine uh, made make them the two richest uh, countries in the world with all the possible crops and commodities and rare metals and strategic metals um, that some birds of prey uh, in the West intend uh, to seize once the two countries are mutually destroyed and immensely indebted. So uh, until February 2022, Putin 
had been a skillful chess player and a cold-blooded uh, judo champion. But when uh, he became angry and responded to all, uh, he invaded the Ukraine and committed a great mistake that, in my opinion, will be fatal to him uh, sooner or later. Now we have no choice but to support uh, the Ukrainians militarily against him. And so the Ukrainians and the Russians are, are, are from now on uh, being used as, uh, as cannon fodder for the greatest benefit of the birds of prey in the West. Just now, uh, let us hope that uh, the heroic military of the Azov Battalion and this 36th Brigade of Ukrainian Naval Infantry in the Azovstal complex in Mariupol will survive, as well as the poor Russian-speaking populations in the Donbas. That's, uh, that's my view of, uh, of uh, the European-Russian uh, relationship uh, presently. It's interesting that you should, would say that, because that's what I've been saying on the show is that it's really a land grab, meaning it's, you know, it's under this smokescreen of democracy, but yet the European Union is not really democratic. Neither is the US right now. We've got cancel culture and other issues within the United States that you have to wonder about our own democracy. But it's this smokescreen of democracy, but yet it seems that there's a lot of vested interests that involve money and agreements. But I have a question. Why was Russia refused? And I've heard Ser Sergei Lavrov state that, that they approached the Europeans. They wanted to be part of the association agreement with the Ukraine and the EU and were refused. Why did Europe refuse Russia that agreement in, in enlisting Russia? That would have seemed to have made really good economic sense for the European Union. And the European Union is built on this idea of unity preventing wars. Don't, if they had included Russia in that type of an agreement, it would have prevented this. Absolutely, absolutely. But unfortunately, some birds of prey uh, prefer to um, use uh, uh, both uh, uh, populations of, of, uh, of Russia and the Ukraine as, as cannon fodder in order to come after the war uh, and uh, rebuild the, at least the Ukraine, maybe also some parts of Russia, and indebt those countries and uh, ask them for um, guarantees uh, with the energy, with the gas and oil energy and uh, their rare metals, etc., and, and all the riches of those two very, very, very rich countries, richer than uh, than the USA, and much richer than uh, Europe. Richer so what you're China. saying is that it's not just what makes political sense, but whosoever hands, whosoever pockets are being lined through these various companies. That's the bottom line, isn't it? The birds of prey. Unfortunately. 
Well, I think we're running out of time. So I'm going to conclude our interview, Christian, but this was very informative and would love to have you back discussing the agreement, this conference on the future of Europe and the changes, the treaty changes that will be coming. That would be a great topic. I want to thank you for coming on today. It was very, very informative and we are running out of time. So I'm going to end this right. Tune in next time for more from Don Provder and Erica Gray for their twist on world news.